Uh, well, friends, uh, I don't know what you would say on your deathbed, but uh, here are some famous words or famous last words that people have said. Uh, Nostradamus is famously reported to have said, Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. He was right in his prediction. Uh, he died the next day. The British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, is reported to have said, uh, I'm bored with it all, just before he slipped into a coma. And the famous Hollywood actor Humphrey Bogart famously said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis, shortly before breathing his last. Uh, now, some of these last words are quite frivolous, aren't they? That's quite sad if you think about it, because um, your last words are an opportunity to kind of sum up the things that are important to you, isn't it? Or at least uh, to say things uh, that have importance or gravity. Now, certainly in the Bible, when the last words of a person are recorded, there is a weight or solemnness or importance to the things that are said. Um, Think about, for example, the last words of Moses, where he lays out blessings and curses for Israel. Or think about the last words of the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy, urging him to continue the good fight of the gospel. Or think about the last words of Jesus himself before he dies on the cross. Uh, where he encourages his disciples in John chapter 13 to 17. Uh, now, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Joshua, and uh, today we begin um, the last uh, few chapters of this book. And uh, you'll notice there that uh, these last chapters are really devoted to recording the last words of Joshua, the leader of Israel, to the people of Israel. And so if you have your Bibles there, um, have a look at chapter 22, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse 1, you can see there that um, Joshua uh, summons the two and a half tribes who uh, have an inheritance to the east of the Jordan. Um, he summons them to himself in order to speak to them. Uh, if you flip with me to chapter 23, verse 2, 23, verse 2, uh, Joshua summons again uh, all of Israel in, in that particular chapter, uh, to speak to them in his old age before he dies. And uh, the same thing happens uh, in chapter 24, as we will see next week. And uh, I want to suggest, um, brothers and sisters, that Joshua's last words here are very important words that he tells Israel about how they are to continue living in the promised land as God's people. Uh, you see, they have been given the promised land by God, as we've seen uh, in previous weeks, but they have uh, still yet to experience everything uh, of God's blessings in the promised land. There are still fights to be had and people to be conquered. And, and so Joshua writes these words to say that the way they continue to live in the promised land as God's people, matters. Obedience matters. It's not an optional extra as God's people. It's very similar to what Jesus himself says to his disciples, isn't it? 
Uh, do you remember Jesus' very sobering words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Obedience matters. It's not an optional extra. You and I cannot serve Jesus as our saviour if we are not also prepared to listen with obedience to him as our Lord. To you. words begins in chapter 22 with a speech to the two and a half tribes of Israel whose inheritance lies to the east. If I point that way, is that your east or should I be pointing this way? It's that way. Uh, to the east of Israel, uh, east of the Jordan River rather. Uh, and I want you to see that what Joshua says is essentially a word of encouragement as he sends them back to the east with his blessing. Uh, you can see this encouragement in verse 2, can't you, where Joshua says in verse 2, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies. Uh, you might remember that all the way back in Numbers chapter 32, uh, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad ask Moses if they can settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River because it has good sort of grazing land for their, uh, for their livestock. In other words, uh, they didn't want to settle uh, on the, the side of, of Canaan uh, to the west. But because of the potential to discourage the rest of Israel who were crossing the, the River Jordan uh, to go to war against God's enemies in the land of Canaan, what Moses says to them, as well as to the half-tribe of Manasseh, that they can only settle in the east if they send their fighting men to join the rest of Israel in fighting the, the battles uh, in the land of Canaan. Uh, and here, what we see is that the two and a half tribes have kept their word. Uh, they've been obedient to Moses, which is really the same as being obedient to, to God himself. And so Joshua sends them with his ble blessing to settle uh, on their side of the Jordan River. But notice, friends, that Joshua doesn't send them off before he gives them a serious charge about the way they are to live. Now, you can see it there in verse 5, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 5. It says, Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, Joshua praises uh, these two and a half tribes for their obedience 
but he stresses the importance of continuing in obedience if they are to experience the full blessing of God. And friends, uh, isn't that true of the Christian life as well? It's not simply about how you begin your Christian life, is it? you continue on in your Christian life that matters to God. In those famous um, words of Colossians 2, 6-7, the Apostle Paul writes, just then as you received Christ the Lord at the beginning of your Christian life, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the face faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Christian life is a bit like riding a bike. You know, when you ride a bike, it's important that you continue to pedal, isn't it? Now, what happens if you stop pedaling? Well, you'll just stand still and eventually fall over. But if you continue, if you continue pedaling and working hard, then you can make real progress. And it's exactly the same in the Christian life. If you do not continue in obedience to God, then you put yourself in danger of falling over. But if you continue to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will make progress. You will grow. You will abound. Continuing to work hard to Jesus in our lives? Or has this kind of stalled for you? Uh, Perhaps 2020, with all its difficulties, has been that year where you've stalled in your Christian life. Uh, Let me urge you to do something about it. Have a think about how you are going to grow in your Christian faith and continue in your obedience to Jesus uh, as we head into a new year. There's nothing more important that you can be doing. Notice that obedience to God is not simply about keeping the rules that God has laid out in his word. It's certainly no less than that. Genuine obedience to God is a deep love for him. And you can see it there in the language of love that Joshua uses in in verse 5, can't you? The two and a a half tribes here are are exhorted to love the Lord your God and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. I suggest that what was true of Israel's religion is also true of the Christian life. For God is only because of His love first for us. It's not just adherence to religion's religious rules, but He demands our love and our hearts and our souls. How do you and I think about our Christian lives? Is it simply about keeping rules and regulations 
and doing the religious rituals, I wonder. Loving Jesus and having a personal relationship with him which drives our obedience, our service, which drives our sacrifices for him. This test is uh, how we speak about our Christian lives. Uh, you know, often I ask people about how they are going in their Christian lives, and uh, frequently the conversation I've noticed um, turns on, you know, church or how consistent they've been in, in going to growth groups or you know, the things they are doing or not doing in their Christian lives. These are all important things. But the one who loves Jesus is the one who speaks about Jesus. Don't you think? The one who is so captivated by him and thankful to him that Jesus kind of oozes out of their speech. loves Jesus in this way, he will ultimately obey God and serve him, whatever the costs may be. Now, has Jesus changed your heart so that you love him and you cling to him and you serve him in this way? Now, today, uh, we sadly farewell um, our dear friends, um, Monique and uh, Joe and Shuva, and uh, Eliana, and uh, uh, I was just reflecting this week as I was preparing this, this talk that it'll be a great thing um, that if we can pray for them uh, as they leave us and uh, go to other, um, other parts of Sydney to serve the Lord, that they might continue to love Jesus uh, in their lives to love him with all their heart and soul, uh, whatever their ministry might look like in the future or whatever their circumstances might be. So uh, let's pray for that, and uh, we will spend a bit of time later um, praying for them in, in that way. Uh, well, we've seen Joshua encouraging the, the two and a half tribes of Israel and sending them back to the eastern side uh, with his blessing. Uh, but what happens next shows the great importance of the unity of God's people in the promised land. Uh, you can see what happens in the next part of chapter 22. Uh, in verse 10, if you have a look there, we are told that before the two and a half tribes cross over to the eastern side of the, the Jordan River, um, what do they do? Well, they build an altar, a large altar, on the bank of the western side in the land of Canaan. And uh, if you read on, it's quite evident that this raises alarm bells for the other nine and a half tribes of Israel who hear about what's going on. And so in verse tw uh, 12, you can see that the whole assembly of the people of Israel take this extreme measure of preparing to go to war against their brothers. Now, why would this building of an altar raise such alarm bells and provoke this kind of response um, for, to, for the majority of Israel? 
Well, one thing you need to know is that way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, you don't have to look it up now, but way back in Deuteronomy 12, God had declared to Israel that he was to be worshipped only at a place of his choosing. Specifically, it would be at the tabernacle uh, where there was an altar where people could sacrifice to, to God. And so you can see that by setting up another altar, it would appear to the majority tribes that these two and a half tribes were sort of engaging in the worship of another god rather than the god of Israel. had some bad experiences with altars in the past. Well, you might remember that back in Numbers chapter 25, there was that tragic incident where the men of Israel were having sexual orgies with uh, pagan Moabite women who lured them away from God and, and uh, uh, encouraged them into the worship of their pagan gods. Uh, we're told that the people of Israel... Uh, began to sacrifice to pagan gods in Numbers 25, which provoked God's anger. It was at a place called Peor. And it was only the zeal of a priest called Phineas, who we meet in our passage, uh, who, if, if you remember, was the one who drove um, a large spear through an Israelite man and a Moabite woman, woman as they were sleeping together which eventually turned away God's anger from the rest of Israel. Uh, it's clear that this incident is on the mind of Israel because uh, later in uh, verse 16, uh, the nine and a half tribes confront the eastern tribes and uh, they say these words. Have a look with me at uh, verse 16. Uh, verse 16. A whole congregation of the Lord... What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel by turning away from following the Lord, by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you rebel against the Lord today then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. You see, um, the nine and a half tribes assume that the two and a half tribes are worshipping and sacrificing to pagan gods, and so they are concerned that this idolatry, this compromise, will also spread to the rest of Israel, burn against the whole nation. You see, they've learned their lesson from what happened with the sin of Achan. Do you remember the sin of Achan? Where it was the sin of one person that spread like gangrene to the rest of Israel such that God's anger burned against the whole community. The nine and a half tribes are doing here in confronting the two and a half tribes is meant to be a negative thing, for they are acting out of a zeal and concern for the spiritual purity of the entire nation. Uh, it's what Ephesians 4 might call speaking the truth in love. 
which means we care enough to confront one another if we see each other falling into sin and idolatry. But the nine and a half tribes, uh, in reality, had nothing to worry about. And uh, you can see this in the way the two and a half tribes assure the rest of Israel that they still worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, you can see it there in the confession of verse 22, where they say, the mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. You see, it's clear that they have not turned away from the worship of Yahweh to him. So why did they build this massive altar? Well, it's because they are concerned about the future. They are concerned that in time, the nine and a half tribes living on uh, the western side in the land of Canaan would tell their children that they are not part of the people of God. I mean, there was this big physical river separating these two peoples. And so you can kind of understand the fear that in time, the majority tribes would kind of exclude the, the, the minority tribes and discourage them from the worship of God. And so they build this altar, not as a way of sacrificing to pagan gods, but as a way of signaling that the two and a half tribes to the east are just as much God's people as the nine and a half tribes to the, to the west. You can see it there in verse 26. Verse 26. Uh, Therefore, uh, the two and a half tribes, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so that your children will not say to our children in time to come, uh, you have no portion with the Lord. A little bit of, about um, the, the cities of Albury and Wodonga. Uh, do you guys know where those cities are? Uh, you might know that these two cities, uh, which are very closely related, um, have a great division uh, between them. Um, one is on the other side of the, the border in Victoria, and the other is on our side of the border in New South Wales. But uh, I'm told that uh, on one side, there is uh, this huge billboard with the motto, Two Cities, One Community. Two Cities, One Community. That is, uh, although they are separated by a physical border, they consider themselves to be one people. Now, that's kind of what's going on here, isn't it? Uh, this altar is like that billboard. It's meant to remind um, all of Israel that they are, they are one people uh, under God himself. Phineas, the, the priest and the elders, gladly accept what the two and a half tribes are saying. And in verse 31... Phineas declares that such unity under God shows that God 
really is among them. It says there in verse 31, And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Uh, what we see here is that real unity among the people of God is found in the worship of the Lord. Real unity is found in the worship of the Lord. It's found in that confession, the mighty one, God is Lord. The mighty one, God is Lord, to which all of Israel subscribe to. And I want to suggest that what was true of the people of Israel is also true for us as those who belong to our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. For our unity is found in that confession that Jesus is Lord and those who are united to him are united to one another in ways that can break down any physical barriers. Uh, I recently read a story of a Christian university conference many years ago where the, delegate, the delegates, the student delegates, uh, came mainly from Korea and Japan. Uh, you might know that traditionally Korea and Japan have been uh, sworn enemies. And yet uh, the story goes that at this particular conference there was so much tension between uh, these two groups of students that uh, they actually had to put physical partitions between them um, during uh, the, the night sessions. But uh, at the end of the week, as these students heard the gospel, spent a week reflecting on the gospel, uh, the wonderful thing that happened was they decided to remove the partitions on the very last night of the conference. And they began to sing their praises to God and declare their common faith in Jesus as their Lord. You see, this is the, the, the kind of deep unity that the gospel brings, isn't it? You see it every week in churches across the world. Well, where else in the world are you going to see such a diverse range of people who really shouldn't have much to do with each other in a worldly sense, loving one another and caring for one another and serving one another sacrificially? People from different ethnic backgrounds, young and old, men and women, rich and poor, We don't even have to look very carefully. Uh, you'll see it even in our own church. As people who are different, who may have nothing to do with, with each other uh, ordinarily, uh, love one another, serve one another, encourage one another uh, week to week despite the differences. The Apostle Paul, where he says, here there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What wonderful words. This unity that comes from the gospel is something we need to 
work on as well, isn't it? For it is true that from time to time we forget and we simply like to mix with other people who are like us. Mixing just with young workers. People from certain ethnic backgrounds mixing with only people from that background. Forget also to welcome newcomers who join us. Break down such barriers because they worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you know that God is really among you. Are you someone who works hard in this way? Are you somebody who uh, works hard at building up and encouraging people who are not like you? that Christ has given to us by his very own blood. Well, friends, uh, we won't have time this morning to look uh, at chapter 23 in a great amount of detail, Uh, but you'll see there that uh, this is part of Joshua's final words, uh, not just to the two and a half tribes, but to the whole of Israel before he dies in his old age. And uh, just as with the two and a half tribes, Joshua wants all of Israel to know the importance of continuing in their obedience to God. It matters. It's not an optional extra, he says. You can see it, for example, in uh, verse 6, chapter 23, verse 6. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. The thing I want you to see in this chapter is what is to motivate that kind of obedience. What is to motivate obedience? And there are actually two motivations to obedience that that Joshua gives here, uh, which go together like a a hand in a glove. Uh, Firstly, it is the motivation of the grace of God. The motivation of the grace of God. You see, Joshua wants the people of Israel to look back and see God's grace to them in driving out the enemies from the promised land and fighting for them. He wants them to see God's continuing grace in being with them, to fight with them. Now you can see it there, for example, in verse 3, chapter 23, verse 3, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you, the grace of God. Isn't there? And that is the motivation of the fear of God. In knowing what will happen if Israel rejects God by compromising in their lives as God's people. You can see it there, for example, in verse 11. Verse 11, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, 
a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good land that he has given you. You see, uh, these two motivations of the grace of God and the fear of God always go together. If you have the grace of God, but you don't have the fear of God, then you will simply presume upon God's grace in your life. You will take his grace for granted and you will not take obedience seriously. Have the fear of God, but you don't have the grace of God, then you will only ever live in terror of God. Both the grace, the wonderful grace of God and the fear of God to continue living their lives in obedience to him, loving him, clinging to him, and serving him wholeheartedly. Just like the people of Israel, you and I are to be the ones who understand both this wonderful grace and this fear of God in our lives. We are to be the ones who look back continually at the amazing grace that God has lavished upon us at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we walk obediently in him. And we are to be the ones who look forward to the day of Christ's return, rejoicing, yes, but also understanding the fear of God because we know that on that day, those who reject Jesus will be destroyed and will perish for all eternity. And so will you and I be motivated by the gospel to continue living our lives, loving Jesus, clinging to him, and serving him? Even from today and into the new year, you love him, cling to him, serve him. It matters to God, and it should matter to us as well. Let's pray. Thank you that in our Lord Jesus Christ, grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We thank you that this grace now teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age as we wait for the return of our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that we might be a people who are motivated by this grace to love Jesus, to cling to him, and to serve him. As we finish a year and look forward to the next, help us to work out how not to go backwards in our Christian lives, but to serve Jesus with all our heart and mind and soul. Father, if there are some of us who have been struggling with compromise in our Christian lives, if there are some of us who have fallen in love with the world and with comfort more than Jesus, we pray that you would especially be with them and strengthen them and motivate them with your grace, as well as the fear of you drifting away. We pray that you would restore them so that they might 
genuinely love Christ and cling to him and serve him wholeheartedly for your glory and for their good. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.